Good morning, I'm Justin Miller, and welcome back to another Best of Swing Thoughts on TSN 1150 Hamilton. Brought to you by TaylorMade Golf, Adidas, and our newest sponsor, the Bushnell Tour V4 Shift Laser Rangefinder. For the first half of today's show, we're going to take a flashback to April of 2017 when golf's spiritual leader, humble Howard Glassman, and coach Tim O'Connor welcomed Dr. Judson Brewer, who had a few interesting things to say about mindfulness and habit-breaking while out on the course. You might want to listen closely to this one, as we're entering now the August portion of your season. I worked a bit with the uh, women's golf team at Yale oh, wow. uh, when we were developing some of our uh, mindfulness training and some of our neurofeedback uh, work, but haven't done, you know, ha- um, that's been put on the side for a couple of years and we're actually coming back to uh, sports psychology now uh, with a vengeance. Cool. Well, one of the things I wanted to connect with was I think that a lot of these things, whether it's mountain biking or golf or a lot of different things, maybe being a stand up comic like my esteemed colleague. For a lot of these things, we joke about them as, you know, an obsession and addictive. And I, I think that what really happens for golfers is they repeat behaviors that, that get in their way all the time. And mm-hmm. I really think that that's the maddening part, is that we repeat these damn self-defeating behaviors. It's almost like we get hijacked and re- we repeat, repeat the cycle. Is that – how does that resonate for you? <laughs> yes, that resonates pretty well. <laughs> It's crazy how we're you know, literally getting in our own way. Yeah. Um, let me just, maybe we can back up a little and talk about your book and, and your research into mindfulness and what is it, what is it about, and I, I, I can kind of feel what Tim was getting at, what is it about our repetitive uh, behaviors, whether it's smoking or, you know, in our case, you know, going and doing the same things over and over again in a game of golf, Let's talk a little bit about your research and what is it about mindfulness that can help people break bad habits? Yeah, I would start with understanding how our brains work. You know, that's that's the approach we've, we've taken. If we can understand how they work, we can then figure out ways to efficiently uh, kind of hack that code, if you want to think of it that way. This uh, So habits and much of our learning is through positive and negative reinforcement. Uh, this was probably set up uh, evolutionarily so we'd remember where food is. Uh, to put a, use a simple example, if we, you know, if we see some nutritional source of food, like we see some berries, uh, we eat the berries and that sends a signal to our brain that says, oh, calories, survival. And we learn, one, that these are edible, and two, where we found them. So it's context-dependent memory that gets laid down. A very, very old process. You know, this was this has been shown to be true from humans all the way back to the sea slug, which only has twenty thousand neurons. Uh, this approach, and then also avoid behavior. So if there's danger, we learn to avoid danger so that we don't die. Uh, and in the same way, you know, this process is still at play in modern day. So food is plentiful, yet our brains have, have not out-evolved uh, remembering where food is, which is probably a good thing. Uh, but so our brains, you know, they kind of get bored and they say, well, I can still use this process for something else. So, you know, if I'm stressed out, I'm going to eat some cupcakes and then I feel better. And so we start <laughs> co-opting this 
for habits that aren't so evolutionarily adaptive. So cupcakes, cigarettes, um, you know, yelling at people in traffic because it makes us feel better or throwing our golf clubs, you know, that's not going to, that's not going to improve our handicap. Um, <laughs> we're just going to have to buy more golf clubs and not a great habit. Mm-hmm. But the key, one of the key things like that to me came out of your book is what we kind of call the, the trigger, the behavior and the reward. Can you mm-hmm. just take us through that? Yes. So let's think of a simple example here. So if the trigger is stress and our learned behavior is to eat chocolate or cupcakes uh, and the reward is that we feel a little bit better because we get that dopamine hit from the sugar, uh, then that perpetuates itself. Every time we get stressed out and we eat chocolate, we're reinforcing that habit loop. Well, I want to ask – I want to get to cigarettes eventually because – I have a couple. I think I have a couple of thoughts that might be, you know, um, counter to your research. But I want to get a little bit more into let's let's leave cigarettes aside, because what Tim asked you there, I think, is the perfect and you response. Your response is the perfect um, sort of setup for a bad habit. Let's talk about throwing clubs. You know, you get excited, you get angry, you throw a club, you release something. But and then and then so it builds a um, a habit of finding relief and release in that activity. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah, so besides releasing our grip on the club, yes. <laughs> it, but I, but it's funny how both those work. You release the the you release the golf club into the. Believe me, I've released some clubs. I have released, but you're also relieving and releasing a momentary buildup of tension, and it goes away. And so what your brain learns, if I'm uh, understanding you is your brain learns that 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 habit of doing that gives you some wouldn't be pleasure but it would be a relief from un- an uncomfortable situation yes i think and so this is a really nice analogy actually so you know if we had all the money in the world i'm sure taylor made would be happy if we form this type of habit oh yeah <laughs> because- yeah, yeah. taylor made we- would like us all to continue to break golf clubs <laughs> but in reality so think of this this grip and think of uh, anger or fear. It's like this gripping, Ugh, I can't believe I shanked that shot. Um, or, Ugh, I, I did it that. again. <laughs> and it just gets more and more contracted. And so literally we throw a club and we there's this momentary release. Like, oh, at least, so, at least I have control over something. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully I didn't hit anybody. Um, with that, it's a temporary, temporary relief or release. And so I think we can really break it down to this contraction versus expansion. If you want to put it in binary terms, we get contracted around fear and anger and frustration. And we train ourselves, oh, you can feel better for a split second um, by throwing your club. And then, you know, as we watch our club sail and hope, you know, then start to contract around, oh, God, who am I going to hit with it? Right. but really what this is this is the crux of the matter is this contraction versus expansion and that's actually what mindfulness training is all about i would argue well i'll ask you to expand on that cuz i think <laughs> that the it's so what you're talking about is that is it becoming more aware that we're triggered and we feel the behavior coming up and then being able to go oh i'm getting sucked into this again um is are you talking about awareness of being able to to respond rather than react at that moment i i would say that comes later so that's that's a more mature response Thank i you. would say it, it starts with 
it's reward-based learning, right? So this is based on rewards. If we can see clearly what our rewards are, we start to become disenchanted with them. So mm. if we if we throw our club and we hit somebody, that's not actually that rewarding. No, We're no, like, it's not. Especially I for the should, person you get, you get that gets hit. Yeah, yeah. So we learn. Oh, that's not a good idea. Pretty quickly. So fortunately, most of us don't hit people when we throw our clubs. But if we, you know, bend it around a tree, then we learn. Oh man, I have to buy a new golf club. Maybe I shouldn't do that again. Um, but even if we don't mangle our club or hit somebody, that immediate relief that comes from that, it doesn't actually fix the problem. So if we can really see that clearly and, and see that we're, you know, we've embarrassed ourselves or we haven't actually made our shot better, um, that helps us recalibrate our brains to say, you know what, next time you're thinking about throwing your club, look at look at the actual consequence. What's what's the actual reward that you get? So. There, we start to recalibrate so that we can then re- respond rather than react, if you talk, as you mentioned, so that before we throw the club, we can, we can stop that behavior. And then we can move into more skillful responses. Well, and I, I'll, I would yeah. ask you, like, if you, don't, if you don't have someone like Tim, who is a mental performance coach, and if you don't have a uh, desire for mindfulness – what 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 where in the continuum of all those trigger and responses and it, how does a person just spontaneously go you know what i've decided today is the last day i'm going to wrap this club around a tree what is the intervention and i guess a two part question what's the intervention and and how does the intervention come from inside out if you don't have if you don't decide on your own you know how do you do this on your own i guess is what i'm asking yeah if there's not awareness of the consequences of the behavior, you know, the reward, then right. we're never going to change behavior. So if we are not aware that, you know, we're keep, we have to keep buying new golf clubs and that's not a pain point for us, you know, then we're not going to look for pain relievers. So until we see clearly how painful these behaviors are, we're not going to change them. I'll, okay. I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example with smoking, for example. Uh, so we've worked a lot with helping people quit smoking. We've done in-person studies with mindfulness training where we have five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Uh, we even have uh, app-based training now that helps people quit smoking with this app called Craving to Quit. But the idea is we start with basically rubbing their face in the behavior. As in, mm. we say, go ahead and smoke, but just pay attention when you smoke. And what people learn very quickly, and it's amazing to watch this because we've had people, you know, smoke for 40 years and they open their eyes with this wide eyed wonder and say, how did I never notice this before? And what they're noticing is that smoking doesn't taste very good. And one of the first things that they point out is they're like, oh, burning in my lungs. I'm actually sending and it's actually superheated air when you smoke a cigarette. They're literally paying attention to the fact that they're burning their wind, their their airway, mm. and that's not pleasant. Right. But they've never paid attention to it before. So imagine smoking twenty cigarettes a day. You know, say five to six puffs at a minimum if you smoke the whole cigarette, uh, times thirty years. So that's you know six puffs times twenty times three hundred sixty-five times thirty. That's a big number that people have not paid attention to the reward. So there's this this awakening that happens literally pretty quickly for a lot of people where they're like, wow, this is not very good. And that starts to recalibrate the whole process in the first place where they now they now clearly have a very strong pain point. 
Does that make sense? It does. And, and what the connection I wanted to make back to, like throwing a club or having some kind of reaction on the golf course, like just you know really swearing or, or getting mad or sulking. I mean, any kind of reaction. I think what you're talking about here is that if you engage in the behavior – that what you really become aware of is, oh, I just threw the club. I feel like I could freaking punch somebody. There's electricity surging through my body. Um, I just feel terrible. Is that is that really what you're talking about? Is like really becoming aware of your experience in that moment? Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Yes. All right. So mindfulness, I, 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 I do want to take some time for cigarette smoking because I was a cigarette smoker for a very, very long time. And I've done a lot of thinking about it. And I've, I've, I've used a particular method that you've probably heard of if you've done as much research as uh, I know you have. It's called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Yes. Um, are you aware of it? I'm aware of it. I'm not super familiar with well, every, it's, everything, it's, it's similar but it's pretty to, similar. It's yeah, similar, that's what people tell me. It, it is similar in uh, a lot of what you're talking about, which is coming awake, or yeah. as we the expression I love these days is coming online oh, with yes. the idea that, oh, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's probably uh, not very good for me. The problem with cigarette smokers and any addicts, whether it's a, a drug or um, addicted to uh you know, aberrant behavior, but with cigarettes in particular, it's the actual nicotine addiction, which is what Alan Carr uh, talks a lot about, which is, yes, you can be aware of this habitual behavior, but at the center of it all, you have to notice that you're addicted to nicotine. And it's the nicotine addiction that creates the behavior and the habits. He would say, and I'll just finish this, uh, Dr. Judd, um, do friends call you Judd or Judd? Just all, is it always Judson? Uh, Judd or Judson. I like it. Yeah, my mom says Judson when I'm in trouble. Yeah, so. yeah of course yeah, she does. It's, it's funny because my mom says Judson when I'm in trouble, which is <laughs> very off-putting. Um, but doctor, but I just love the I love the dichotomy of Doctor Judd. It's uh, it's both uh, brilliant and homespun. Oh, it's from, <laughs> aren't you from Missouri? I grew up in Indiana. Oh, Indiana. Well, there well, you go. I don't know, Middle America. There <laughs> so, Doctor yes. Judd, never mind. Flyoverland uh, is coasters. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, and I'm going to tell you, I'm 57 years old, and I'm 45 seconds removed from what point I was trying to make. So, just give me a second. So, sure. um, what I was going to say is, at the at the basics, the basis of cigarette smoking, according to I'm just giving you the Alan Carr Cole's notes, which is. You need to understand that it's the nicotine addiction that creates the behavior that is not a habit. And you got into the habit of smoking cigarettes because you were addicted to nicotine. What say ye, Dr. Judd? I say, yes, cigarettes release dopamine and they cause dopamine release in the brain. And that's the habit forming molecule. If you want to think of it that way, it's it's uh, associated with reward based learning in every a drug that's every addictive drug that's known to man, uh, from cocaine to heroin to alcohol, et cetera. So yes, that does form the habit. And here, here's the funny part: is that plants, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, nicotine is actually a toxin. It's very toxic. If you injected uh, nic- straight up nicotine into your blood, it, it would <laughs> the lethal lethal dose fifty, as they say, that would kill fifty percent of people is pretty low. Yeah. So this was developed. 
as an evolutionarily adaptive strategy for plants, which is also why humans, when they first smoke a cigarette, they tend to feel nauseated because their body's saying, dude, this is poison. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's part of what Carr says. He's like, you, he reminds you that it, it took quite a bit of effort to get hooked on nicotine because the first and that's what the problem is. Most people smoke it and think there's no way I could get addicted. I could. I can't keep doing these. These are ridiculous. Yeah. And yet we yeah. do. Yes. So th that's where the the system gets hijacked. If we keep overriding our natural uh, inclinations to say, "Don't do this. This is toxic," you know, whether it's peer pressure. Uh, and that's often the case, you know, in, you know, I, the average age of onset for uh, smoking in our smoking trial, I think, was 13 years of age. Yep. So uh, not 13. not exactly the mature mind. You know, this yeah. is right at the the early adolescence where there's a lot of peer pressure, a lot of awkwardness. That was probably the, the peak of my awkwardness <laughs> in life. And so there you were really susceptible to not only forming new habits, but also to uh, to peer pressure. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the problem begins. And, you know, that was one of the uh, evil geniuses of the nicotine industry was mm -hmm. to get uh, kids addicted. Uh, they, they didn't really, well, I'll just stop there. Um, so if we know that, and we know that that's how it, it starts, and how it often gets perpetuated, especially once we become physiologically dependent, uh, that's a negative reinforcement process. You know, we the nicotine levels go low in our blood. Our brain says this is uncomfortable. Make it go away. We say, don't worry, I'll smoke a cigarette. We smoke a cigarette. We feel better. But the irony here is it's only bringing us back to baseline at this point. We're not right. actually feeling good from it. We're just feeling less bad from our nicotine withdrawal. And that's also why the first cigarette of the morning is the toughest one to kick. You know, it's interesting. That's almost and, and I and I invite you because I, 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 I've been interested in this cigarette conundrum for a long time. And that what you just said about coming back to baseline is literally sort of the basics of the Alan Carr method, which is once you get your head around the fact that you're not really getting anything from it, all you're doing is returning to the same level uh, that you had prior to smoking cigarettes, uh, you know, at age 12. It just brings you back to normal. The problem with cigarettes is as time goes on, like any drug, you build this tolerance to it, so you need more and more of it, and you almost never get back to baseline. You're always just a little bit mm. under it, which is why 20-year-old smokers do five a day and 50-year-old smokers do 35 a day. Yes, and I'm not sure it's that clear cut, but the, the idea is, is true, absolutely. What, where it's interesting, though, is when people are trying to quit smoking, and, and again, I, I, um, I'm, fortunately, there aren't nearly as many smokers today as there were, but there seems to be a hardcore subset, at least in the U.S., of about 20% of the population, so it's still pretty prevalent. Uh, but it would be we can certainly talk about other other habits that are uh, that might be even more relevant to folks today. Uh, but just to finish the you know this thought around this, below about so the half life of nicotine is two to four hours depending on our physiology and our liver enzymes. And once we get below um, you know below ten and certainly below five cigarettes a day, there's actually no physiologic dependence because mm. we can't keep our nicotine levels high enough to keep those receptors, you know, uh, upregulated. Basically, you know, to keep to to have that brain scream that says there's not enough nicotine in my blood because there's not enough to get us dependent. So, 
the the psychological dependence is the is the piece that people really struggle with when they get below five cigarettes because it's not physiologic at that point, and that's where uh, you know it moves beyond the you know that just getting back to baseline. It, it's more uh, related to the the that urge that comes from a trigger, uh, the psychological cue, and we mm-hmm. we've even seen this in the literature where. You know the nicotine lozenges and the uh, the other uh, pharmacologic treatments don't actually target or treat psychologically induced cravings because that's not what they're designed for. They're designed for the nicotine receptors. Yeah, there's yeah. just a nicotine delivery system. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so I can remind uh, our listeners we're uh, we're talking to Dr. Judson Brewer. He's the author of The Craving Mind: From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love: Why We Get Hooked and how we can break bad habits. So, so Dr. Judd, when you're talking about uh, cigarettes, there's a lot of connections you can make to golf in terms of, you know, you're saying psychological dependence and, you know, just, just behaviors that we repeat, 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 even though we don't like them. And uh, one of the reasons why I was looking forward to, to, speaking you to speaking to you today was when I listened to you on, uh, you were on Dan Harris's podcast, 10% Happier, and I'm driving along. And you're talking about trigger, behavior, and reward. And it made me think uh, that this is what golfers do. And so I'm going to take you through a scenario that I think a lot of us do um, all the time. And that is a golfer will be going along pretty well with his game, his or her game. And then he won't be playing so well. Thus begins, there's the triggers. Like, oh, I'm not playing well. And so thus they begin the search and so they find, you know, what's going on with my golf swing. So they'll they'll seek information, uh, maybe online, uh, maybe go through the catalog of thoughts that they've had in their heads. And then they'll finally find something, and that'll be like the reward. And and then they'll so they'll go out in the next game thinking, okay, I'm going to break 90 today, or I'm going to break 80. But then. It's, you know, two or three holes in, there's some emotional pressure, and it's back, It's they've lost it. And then they're back into this cycle again. And mm-hmm. it just seems to be this repeating cycle that happens to golfers all the time. Trigger, behavior, reward, and they're stuck in it. How does that, yes. how's that sound? Looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> yes. So if we're constantly looking outside of ourselves to try to fix something, that's actually not broken in the first place and we're you know we're standing there breaking it and then trying to look for something to fix it uh we're never (laughs) we're never going to solve the problem so we're going to be constantly looking for a better club or a better technique or a better coach uh when in reality you know it goes back to this contraction and expansion thing that we talked about at the beginning if i'm going out in order to shoot an 80 or below or Shoot, that's not the right. What, how, what do you call it? Uh, anyway, break we, to, yeah, you got it. Yeah, to break eighty. Um, that's an in order to. So this is based on extrin- extrinsic rewards. So if the trigger, like you, you pointed it out very nicely. You know, the trigger is this thought that says I'm going to break eighty. The behavior is we're on our way to eighty, and then we break eighty, and the reward says, Yeah, I'm I'm killing it. I'm ripping it up today. Um, I'm sure that's how golfers think, right? I'm it's exactly. It I, it's almost word for word how golfers think. I'm ripping it up. You are ripping it up, Doctor Judd. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so that's so, so keep going. Yeah. So then we we set this expectation 
again, external reward. Oh, I shot under 80. And so I'm going to, that feels good. I'm going to go do that again. And then we were on track to not do that. And then, it, you know, it's the death spiral where right. we start thinking, oh, no, I'm never going to do it. And that thought, that stinking thinking, as we talk about in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, is is what actually causes the problem as compared to magically our swing is off. You know, it's not like suddenly we've unlearned everything that we learned before. It's just that we're getting in our own way in that sense. Um, so. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so think of it in terms of so that that extrinsic motivator is, you know, it's it's a time a ticking time bomb because it, it, it at any one moment we can start getting getting contracted. And boy, you know, I haven't played much golf, but being contracted and, and worried is not going to help me shoot my best game. What a great clip. GSL, Coach Tim, and Dr. Judson Brewer all have a way with words, to say the least. Coming up after the break, we're going to look back at 2016, when GSL and Coach Tim spoke with Megan Chapman about giving yourself permission and forgiving yourself, and how it allows you to arrive at the technique that allows you to have fun while on the golf course. Welcome back to the second half of Swing Thoughts on TSN 1150 Hamilton, brought to you by our friends Adidas, TaylorMade Golf, and our newest sponsor, the Bushnell Tour V4 Shift Laser Rangefinder. I guess to put it sort of in a, as simple as I can here, um, you know, rather than sort of treating symptoms in the golf swing, I started to get fascinated with what's the source um, to why the symptoms happen in the first place. So <clears throat> I, when I got into the golf industry in 2009, I you know, did what I knew, and that was to sort of treat symptoms. If someone was coming over the top, let's come in from the inside, and if someone's sort of hanging back, let's get them sort of getting their hips through. Um, <clears throat> but what I noticed is that over time, <clears throat> excuse me, I... Uh, you know, it just felt sort of kind of empty. didn't feel like much was kind of happening for that person. They'd have a couple of good shots, and hopefully they'd end on a good one and send them along their way, and that was about it. And I started to track their progress, and not many people got, got better, actually, from that. So I started to look a little deeper of, well, what's missing? What can, what can I kind of look into here that would allow for a greater change in somebody? And I sort of, a parallel to this, I would make would be if I go to see a doctor, not to say I'm a doctor by any means, but just as a parallel, if I go see a doctor, I'd, I'd, I'd rather have that doctor sort of get to the source of my symptoms rather than just sort of um, keep filling my prescriptions, so to speak. And uh, that's where it all started for me. And I guess that was about six years ago um, when I started to be a golf professional. Well, I think you were saying when we met is that you were on a certain track in terms of the way you learned the game, and I'll use the word you just used, that you found it was kind of empty. There wasn't, you weren't really seeing the progress, and there, you really weren't getting, shall we say, the fulfillment that you were seeking. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, it kind of felt, like I said, kind of one person after another, and it wasn't, it really didn't feel fulfilling, and that's where 
um, I started to ask these questions of, well, what else could there be more to this than just sort of this telling somebody what to do and and basically just evaluating and judging their golf swing. And, uh, you know, that's when I sort of thought out, okay, I wonder if other people are feeling this way. And it was kind of neat to come across Extraordinary Golf and Fred and his team, and I've spent uh, quite a bit of time with them. And, you know, to meet yourself, Tim, and there's other people out there that I know are asking a lot of the same questions. So, um, you know, it's been it's been kind of fun to explore that with other people. When you say empty, I, what did you kind of mean by that? Is that like just you were trying to give people the typical Band-Aid thing, like fix fix your swing plane and put the club here and, and do this, the, all that kind of typical thing? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it was sort of, here's a golf swing, and, um, okay, there were, you know, I could see what they were they were doing, so I just sort of told them, okay, let's do this instead. And what I noticed is that telling them what to do is what kind of got in their way. Because now, because I guess over the, over the last, I don't know, four or five years, I started to really ask the question to, you know, hundreds of people now, when you play your best golf, um, can you describe it for me? What does it feel like? And everyone describes it very similarly. They say, you know, feels like nothing. feels like um, I just got kind of got out of my own way. I wasn't worried about anything. So then I, was, I just kind of realized, well, my teaching was actually getting in their way. I was telling them things to stop that sensation of coming out. And that seems like kind of the golf culture we're in. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, because it really seems that everyone, you go uh, Golf Channel, you go to Golf Digest, you go wherever, and it's take this from the expert, apply this to your game, and you'll suddenly play better. You'll hit the ball like Bubba, as Golf <laughs> Digest would say, and that, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, hey, it's a good recipe for business because just, you know, filling up a prescription, that's, that's not a bad way to have, have business keep coming back. So what kind of – yeah, well you talk, that's interesting. You talk about business coming back, but I also thought it was really interesting is that what you thought was success for you was if you had a few sessions, you, maybe you coached a player for a while, and they didn't come back for a while, and that was success for you, which is you know, quite different than the usual model. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, and Extraordinary Golf talks about this a lot, is, you know, the ability to self-coach. And, you know, if you can walk away with um, a greater awareness of your own self um, and what gets in your own way, you know, we don't have to rely on the external, somebody else or something outside of us. The answers are always within. So, you know, if we can if we can create an environment where someone can start to see that, um, it's pretty neat what they can kind of find out on their own and, and uh, you know, the change that can happen for them. Um, the problem with a lot of golf instruction that frustrates players is, you know, you tell them something one day and you say, you know, you're, I don't know, let's, let's get beyond something basic. And you say, you know, this is kind of where I want your club you know, halfway back in, in your backswing. The problem with golfers is that they go out and they maybe they practice it a little bit. And then while they're actually playing the game, they're not only measuring their golf, golf playing, they're measuring their golf uh, expertise against where Megan told them their club had to be. 
Hmm. And that's why it's doubly frustrating because not only are they not playing any better, but they, they're not doing what the guru or the, the, the coach told them to do. So now they think that not only, <clears throat> pardon me, are they a bad golfer, but they're a bad learner. Mm-hmm. That they're not really learning what you've asked them to do. So Fred Shoemaker's approach is different. How do you synthesize what, you know, extraordinary golf, how do you get an average player to kind of buy into the dogma of, you know, it's within you and it's in your body and, and, and be connected to the target when they're from a culture of placing the club at the nine o'clock position and your right hand has to be in this position. How do you uh, reconcile that with the average guy there or woman that comes to see you? Hmm, That's a great question. It is a great question. (laughs) He is the master of great questions. Just let's leave it. It's a great question. (laughs) Um, I think the first thing that needs to shift is the attachment to outcome and because once we are hung up on that the learning really does stop so I think that we can create that environment for ourselves fairly easily on the range but when we go and play all of a sudden it changes so the learning can stop really quickly because now we'll judge how the ball flies and lose sight of okay what did I experience there where what part in the swing did I kind of get in my own way there Um, so I think I think that's the beginning um, and when you can start to create that environment for somebody or, or basically they can create it for themselves, um, then they can start start to see uh, kind of glimpses of, okay, this kind of feels good and this feels more fun than sort of being hung up and attached on every single little thing that happens to this golf ball. But if somebody comes to see you, they're usually coming to see an instructor because they have... Uh, this notion that they're not a very coordinated person and nothing makes you feel less coordinated than golf. How do you take them? Like, let's again, let's say somebody has some kind of idea how to hold a club and some idea of standing. I mean, do you make some basic corrections and then you say, okay, but here's a way I want you to, to feel differently in a golf environment. Yeah. So basically how I would, what we've done with a lot of people. So we take a, when someone comes to the door, we, we'll start with something really simple like throwing a golf ball. So literally just have them throw a golf ball underhand, not to any specific target, just throw it out there. And anyone I've ever seen has been able to pretty much do that. It doesn't necessarily go straight out there, just doesn't really matter. But everyone that throws a golf ball has weight shift, balance, their arm and their body are in sync to each other. Um, they have rhythm, tempo, all that. So then from there, uh, when we go put a club in the hand, hands, we have them sort of, okay, let's not replicate the throw necessarily, but see if you can kind of feel the same amount of permission as your throw, swinging in the same amount of permission. So all of a sudden their swing um, starts to look very athletic, very in sync, even, even in a beginner golfer. Then from there, once they can kind of feel, yeah, it feels about the same, then we kind of add one little element, add a goal. So we put a, maybe put a tee down on the ground. So the question would be, now that there's a goal there, does the permission get stifled or stuck somewhere, or do you have the same amount? And when they usually can grow the same amount of permission in the swing within the goal, they have solid hit every time. It's really interesting that I've never heard it put that way of permission. Mm-hmm. Is that the same as kind of 
allowing yourself to go, experiencing your swing, experiencing what's happening to you without judgment, shall we say? Yeah, I would say so. Because when the permission gets stifled, it just means that there's a point in which, in that, in those two seconds of a golf swing, is where all of a sudden, um, you know, a try, a want, a fear, a hope, basically manifests in the swing. And usually, for most people, it's before impact somewhere. Sometimes it's, you know, in their transition. Sometimes it's right before impact. Sometimes it's, you know, starts at the beginning of the golf swing. So when they can start to feel the difference between when they get stifled and their permission gets stuck versus when they, you know, have full permission for those two seconds, then they can start to feel the experience and the difference. The biggest thing to allow for that is, yes, creating a space where really they're free of judgment of how it all, of how the ball flies, of how they're doing, of how it looks, because that's when they can really start to feel and experience um, their swing potentially for the first time. And now it's interesting having read Fred's book years ago and having talked to Fred, and he's a delightful fellow. He's a good chap. Um, mm-hmm. But I always, I often wonder, and you can answer this for him and yourself, is this method of instruction, do you think is more beneficial for a beginner player, an intermediate, or an expert? And, and the reason I ask that question is I think the longer people have been in the world of golf, the less malleable they are because of all the, the thousands of cuts and scar tissue that they've endured through their golfing experience. It's tough to remove a lot of that programming mentally and physically from somebody that's been doing it a long time because part of it is they think they know. Or they think that there's a, a solution, and they're just going, oh, I heard Megan's a good teacher. I'll go to her. Maybe she can save me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I'd agree with that. And, I, you know, Fred did, did say something kind of neat. He said, you know, the people the easiest to work with are the ones that are either desperate or inspired. <laughs> and it's kind of true. That was actually the original name of the show. <laughs> uh, we were going to call it Desperate and Inspired, but we, uh, we went with Swing Thoughts. So you're saying somebody who is at the, uh, you know, it's funny. I bring it up, Megan, because I have a friend who is a, a very fine teacher. And uh, we were just hanging out yesterday. And uh, he sent me a note after. We were just hitting balls together. And he sent me a note after because I saw a guy walked over to him after I left. And uh, I said, what was that all about? And he said, this guy walked up to me. And I wish I had the note in front of me. He said, I'm at the point now. Whether I'm either going to quit golf or go left-handed. Because <laughs> that's, and that to me, I laughed. I go, that's desperation. Yeah. If you're about to go left-handed thinking that's the only thing left for you, what do you say if that's one of your new students? I find that's really exciting because <laughs> they're, they're so ready to be open to, you know, what's possible for them and maybe look at a different way um, I guess a different way of looking at themselves, so to speak. You know, I think also, you know, Fred talks about you know, the world in which we live in. You know, they're ready for a shift in that. And so it's so, it's so exciting to have people that come to the door that are, you know, really close to, you know, this is it. To the edge. Like, if yeah, something exactly. doesn't change, I'm done. And I've heard this a few times this summer, including from uh, the, the fellow who sits across from me back in the deep, dark June. But... Uh, we were also talking about yoga before we got on the air. We're noting that, that you uh, are a yoga instructor. How, does that inf- how did that influence your instruction? Um, yeah, and actually, um, really neat way. There's such a parallel here, and I find, 
Um, obviously, the benefits physically of yoga um, are pretty obvious, but um, what I've noticed is that in yoga, when there's when we detach ourselves, so thoughts come in naturally. They always do. Thoughts are going in, you know, coming in right now in all of our heads right now. But when we detach ourselves from them and not judge them, just sort of be the witness, the observer to the thoughts, watch them kind of come in and come out, um, that gives us a chance to kind of come into the state of, you know, calmness, peace, um, you know, kind of be in our body, those types of things. Um, usually that state feels really wonderful, feels like that's when we're really present. Um, time kind of stops existing in that moment. So <clears throat> that's the biggest parallel I found to to this is in those two seconds of a golf swing when we um, when we detach ourselves from the want, try, fear, and hope, um, things kind of take care of itself. And this this brilliant technique comes out too. It's quite fascinating to watch. So I'd say those are the biggest. That's the biggest parallel I find between yoga and golf. You know, it's funny. There's so many uh, cliches in golf and acronyms and little things that we accept. And I was telling Tim before we started recording that I went through two major yoga phases in my life. Most recently, a couple of years ago, where I I went back to yoga. I originally I did uh, moksha, then I did Bikram. Oh, by the way, what you which uh, do you teach? Um, Hatha. Hatha yoga, which is and, and, basically and, an umbrella to a lot of the other sure. yoga lineages. Sure. A lot of the Hatha poses are incorporated into the other two. But I just remember um, when I first started taking yoga, I brought my sort of type A golf OCD. I was going to, I went from never having done yoga to like, I'll probably instruct yoga someday. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember at some point, you know, feeling awkward. You know, when you do hot yoga, your first couple of uh, times in that studio, you're basically thinking, your thoughts are, I don't know what I'm doing, and I think I'm going to die. Because it's so hot, and then one of the instructors I had said, you know, if you can just be in this room and not worry about how you're doing, and not, you know, my goal for the first month was to be able to make it through the 60 or 90 minutes without passing out. Because mm-hmm. it really is, it's something, uh, there's something psychological about that, that amount of heat. The other thing that I remember, and I, just as you talked, is, is it's, and it's funny because I got to a stage where from golf standards, I would have been like a 15 handicap yoga participant. But I realized at some point it didn't matter. It, and, and they always say this in yoga. It's yoga practice, not yoga perfect. <laughs> And, and for some reason, we can't bring that to golf because we have hit, all of us have hit perfect golf shots. We think, strangely enough, that all our shots should be perfect. Mm-hmm. But isn't that, isn't the point that it's, that's not the point. The point is it's just practice. Yeah. It always is just practice. And I think it's easy, and myself included, we lose sight of that. Um, you know, when we go out and play, are we really playing golf? And, you know, I looked up the definition of play, and it's basically to engage in activity for the sheer enjoyment and fascination. And when we're playing golf, are we really playing, or are we just working at it all the time? Um, when we're in a place of play, we're in a place of non-judgment and fascination and curiosity and learning. Um, but, yeah, I'd say majority of majority of us are, once we get on the golf course, that sort of stops. And now it's become about performance and working and trying really hard. And uh, it doesn't seem as fun from that place. 
Yeah, and what's really interesting is that in that place of, say, try hard, grind, hate that word, mm-hmm. but when when that happens, we because we're trying so hard, we in fact become unconscious to what's really going on. And I think that's when the dreaded slice comes or the shank or, or whatever. And I think that's one of the things that I found so refreshing when I first started to become interested in Fred's approach and then, you know, obviously with yours, is that it's really a different way of approaching the game in that we're, we're trying to disassociate ourselves from the results from what's happening, but to be really conscious to the experience. And I think for most golfers, that's a foreign thing. They don't really know what they did because they, they'll make a swing and go, what did I do there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, we lose the attachment to how that ball flies. You know, the instant that happens, we lose sort of the experience of what allowed for that to happen. Well, when you're a yoga instructor and you're, you know, the people in front of you are, you know, going into a pose, um, you know, you'll hold that pose sometimes for 15 seconds. And and a good instructor uh, can sort of verbally correct you. Some are very good at hands-on adjustments. Mm Mm-hmm. And how do you, but it's tough as a golf coach or as a golf teacher where you're, you have your student in front of you in an environment that the game isn't played on. Like a range, right? Like a range. Like there's nothing, that has nothing to do with golf. And yet they have to go away and their yoga studio, if you will, is the golf course. And you're not there to make sort of quiet mental adjustments. Yeah. So how do you set your players up for Success. What's the mindset you send them out into the the world with? Another great question. Amazing. <laughs> Hang on a second. That's why um, this is that's this is why this is the award winning swing thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I can see why. Um, yeah, that's the biggest challenge. Absolutely, I have. I mean, when someone you can create this environment in that hour, you know. Um, and pretty readily and you know Gary Lester of Extraordinary Golf talks about you know you're really loving that person for an hour Mm -hmm. and so but so you know we can do all this and then but yeah when they go away um, and they're not with you anymore it's out of your control completely out of your control and you know now they're who knows they could be listening to you know Golf Channel all that kind of stuff other people and that's okay and that's normal that that's going to happen but, um, yeah, that's one sort of challenge I've found. And the most success I've had is the people I've worked with, you know, for I've done, like, unlimited coaching for four months, basically. And so you see that person quite often. And that's the you can really, over time, start to see the shift in how they see the world. Do you have a rate where you, like, move into a person's home, you eat with their family, <laughs> you're down in the basement, anytime they get a notion, they can come and go, uh, Megan, I, I just want to talk about slicing. Can I, can I borrow the car? <laughs> That's right. Well, Megan's there in the backseat on your way to work. You know, you're like, you know, anyway. Um, you know, it's funny about extraordinary golf or other methods of golf that are non-traditional. Mm-hmm. And people always say to me, well, but yeah, I mean... That's all good and well, but what if I want to, like, hook it around that tree uh, over water? and Just think it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's – I always sort of support the idea that, you know, if you're a decent player – I'm not talking about a brand-new golfer, but if you're somewhere in the handicapped teens, you've hit draws and you've hit cuts and you've hit low shots and high shots. And sometimes when you're in the world of play – uh, and even at my level, you know, I, I sometimes couldn't tell you how I conspired 
to give myself permission to draw it around a tree. I just, I just feel it. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't just, I could, I could talk about drawing your right foot back, putting it back in your stance, hooding the club and, and all that stuff. But ultimately I give myself the information and then, but over the ball, I'm not thinking that. I'm just sort of feeling it because okay. I, I sort of got this sort of trust in my, my physical being to pull it off. Yeah. But I've been doing this a long time, and I also buy into it. I would think somebody who uses your method, that might be the biggest gulf to um, close, the gap to close, <clears throat> because everyone wants, tell me exactly how to do this. The information. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, and, and I say, like, when I, when someone throws a ball, if I ask them to put draw spin on it, or, you know, or the opposite, they can do it. They can do it. They know how to. It's amazing to watch. So, you know, when they open up to, okay, now they can start to feel this sort of permission-filled swing and know, know what it's like to not get in their own way, so to speak. Um, you know, to basically swing without a yip, basically. You know, then they can start to open up to ball flight and that, you know, drawing and fading the ball. And, and, and they, we already know how to do that, just as you're describing. We kind of, we just know how to do it. But the want to do it perfectly is what gets in the way right. of doing it, I've noticed. Well, that just about does it for our time with you this morning. Thanks for tuning in to this best of episode of Swing Thoughts, sponsored by Adidas, TaylorMade Golf, and our newest sponsor, the Bushnell Tour V4 Shift Laser Rangefinder. I'm Justin Miller. For more episodes of Swing Thoughts, check us out on iTunes, and don't forget to like Swing Thoughts on Facebook. We'll see you next week when Coach Tim and GSL are back. Competition.